You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Emswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we welcome Father John Bethencourt from the Holy Trinity Orthodox Church. Father John, welcome. Thank you, Rabbi Neil. It's good to be here. It's great having you here. So let's start by rightly assuming I know very little about the difference between Eastern and Western Christianity. So what, what is Eastern Orthodoxy and, and what makes it unique? Eastern Orthodoxy began in the Middle East and is the original and, and uh, first form of Christianity, starting in Jerusalem and then into places like Antioch. Uh, I'm part of the Antiochian uh, Patriarchate, and our patriarch is in Antioch, actually in Damascus now, on the street called Strait, where uh, St. Paul was converted. So it has a very ancient uh, uh, center. And uh, then it spread into Greece and eventually into Russia and the Balkans and so forth. Uh, And it has a particular flavor that would be more mystical, I would say, mm-hmm. and uh, less legalistic. Uh, maybe we'd even say less rationalistic, although orthodox are not anti-rational. Right. But we would emphasize an, uh, an organ in the human being that is yet higher than the rational part of, of humanity, namely what we would call in, in Greek the nous or the noetic understanding. It's transrational. It's above reason. And um, so in the West, there might be a certain category mm-hmm. of saints called mystics. But in the East, the whole faith is mystical. It's, it's all about knowing God directly. Right. And so, um, so what does that mean in terms of knowing God directly? How, how does one know God? Well, uh, we would say there's actually three levels of growth uh, in the knowledge of God. The first would be, uh, I would say, just in terms of praxis or practice. Right. Um, learning how to say the prayers, um, memorizing uh, the scriptures, uh, learning the liturgies, uh, learning how to fast, give alms, just the basics. Um, that would be the, f- the first level. The second would be on a a natural level, uh, which we call natural contemplation. It would be understanding how God created the whole creation and finding uh, what we would call his logi or a logos, a word, in everything that's created, finding God in creation. So we would say the first gospel for us is nature itself. Um, Then the highest level would be transrational, and it would be this noetic realm. And, uh, for example, St. Paul said in Romans 12, be ye transformed by the renewal of your, in the Greek, nous, this noetic organ, like, like eyesight or like a vision, like a lens. And be ye transformed by the renewal of your nous. It's translated into English, mind, 
Right. Because there's just no good word in English. It's in the West, again, and we just don't have many noetic words, words to refer to this, this phenomenon that I'm speaking about, the highest. But the fathers say, if you will cleanse the noose, the, the lens of this sight, you can see God and come to know God, know God in the same way I think that uh, the Jewish faith would uh, use the word know like Adam and Eve knowing one another. It's a very intimate, right. very interpenetrated way of knowledge. See, there's so much here for me to ask. This is fascinating. Um, I guess let's take through those those three levels. Firstly, the the praxis, then the natural contemplation, and then this noetic level. Um, so in terms of the praxis, um, does God demand particular behavior um, or are there particular behaviors in your tradition that draw us closer to God than others? Um, or is or, or is this fasting and almsgiving? Is this is this something or, or these prayers? Is this something that speaks of us? So I guess I'm asking, is it top down ritual or is it bottom up ritual in terms of in terms of where its authority is is derived? Uh, from its authority, we would say from above, right. from God. Right. But one thing I would say right at the beginning about orthodoxy, orthodoxy is paradoxy. It's this and that. This would be another distinction from the West. The West tends to pit one thing against the other. Uh, and that's not our way. Uh, so we would say it's both of God and of man. Um, another distinction I would make right off, it's not legalistic. So right. fasting or, or things that would be kind of a rule of life, we don't hold those rules as legalistic, but therapeutic. Ah. They have to do with the transformation of the human person, which is at the heart of orthodoxy. And the highest of that is, a, a, again, a Greek word I would use is theosis. Theosis is literally to be, to use a, a made-up English word, ingodded, to be uh-huh. in God and God in you, in, in a very intimate union. And that would be at the heart of orthodoxy. Everything we do is for the purpose of growing in theosis. I find this extraordinary because um, immediately you're challenging, and quite appropriately, the Western mindset, which I think is a mechanistic mindset that we've held for the last few hundred years of of things can be described in a particular way, um, in a mechanistic way, that sense of, uh, or the scientific perspective of everything has a truth which can be revealed in particular study. Um, and so therefore everything can be reduced to a particular label. But you seem to be saying theologically, actually that's not necessarily appropriate or helpful because because we are more than just one description or, or meeting God can be more than one way that there is um, paradox between our different um, assessments of, of being. Would that be appropriate? Yes, I think we could say that, that in some sense the Western religion is like uh, Newtonian uh, physics, whereas Eastern orthodoxy would be more like new physics, where there's paradox. For example, in the study of light, mm-hmm. we would say it's, it's, you know, Western would say you have to pit one against the other. Is it particle or wave? From an orthodox perspective, the answer is yes. 
It's both. So, for example, our understanding of Jesus, is he God or man? The answer for us is yes. He is the theanthropos, the God-man, the one who's both God and man. Interesting. And, and, and the this, this second level that you said about natural contemplation, you said an extraordinary um, uh, statement that the first gospel is nature. Yes. Tell me more about that, because that's a, I mean, particularly modern perspective, I would say, in the West, at least. Um, what does that mean that the, for you that the first gospel is nature? Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day, night unto night, they show this perfect praise. We see God's fingerprints everywhere we look when we look to creation. Because God creates everything good and man in his own image. And this very good, right? Right. Tov ma'ov, really good, right? So, but then... What does it say of God? If we look at creation, and, and I totally I, I have sympathy with this psalmic perspective of the na- the heavens and the, the created world around us showing evidence of, of, of something greater than itself. And yet, and again, maybe this is the paradox, and yet nature is also extremely violent and consumes itself. And, um, and one element in nature naturally consumes another. That speaks to a very different sense of God, does it not? I think so. And, and I think we would say that the creation that was created by God in the beginning, very, very good, had a fall. It, it fell from grace and it fell precisely through Adam and Eve, uh, the first created man and woman. And so this speaks to our whole understanding. If the fall is primarily not about breaking a law, although Mm -hmm. it is a breaking of a law, but primarily about breaking of a relationship, a communion with God, then the, the healing of that fall, both for the human being but also for all creation, would be this reuniting of the whole creation through the priestly person, the priestly human being who offers the whole creation back to God eucharistically with thanksgiving, that is to say, uh, the, the word eucharist literally, to give thanks, to offer back to God uh, what is his and to see it restored and, and uh, renewed. And so, This notion, for example, of theosis um, is a notion not only for the human being to be restored and doxified, glorified, um, but the whole creation, every speck of stardust to be totally transfigured and we would even say deified uh, in God through communion. So I I – before we explore theosis, I, I want to really pick up. I mean, you've mentioned Adam and Eve a couple of times, and sometimes I've um, asked guests what their perspective on, for example, the creation narrative is in a historical sense. I feel like would would I be right in saying that wouldn't be an, an appropriate question for you because that would be too narrow a reading. Um, would you be holding it more? real on a theological sense and not necessarily worrying about it in a mechanistic, scientific sense? I was, yes and no. Uh, I, I think we, we look at the theology that's revealed there 
and we live out of that theology. Uh, but I personally, and I would say many of the church fathers and, and uh, those who would articulate the faith would say, yes, there's something very mystical about creation beginning or, or that, that the Adam being um, actually a real person who was, in, was breathed into by God who shifted from whatever uh, was before on, on some kind of animal level, uh, ex became now a, a God-man, became uh, in the image of God. And that that was a unique calling from which Adam fell. And for which we would then say the new Adam, our understanding of who Jesus Christ is, the Theanthropos, that that Jesus becomes now the one new man in whom everything in the cosmos is reconciled and made whole and transfigured into light and into joy and into its original beauty, even beyond its original beauty, something even higher. Let's take a pause there because what I would like to do is is come back and explore this theosis and this this relationship with God, which is so intimate um, as to be, for me, startling and challenging and therefore uh, particularly, I, I think, worthy of, of exploration because it's, it's so exciting. So um, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich uh, with my guest, Father John Bethencourt from Holy Trinity Orthodox Church. And we'll return after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest for this evening, Father John Bethencourt from the Holy Trinity Orthodox Church. And we've been exploring um, the um, Eastern Christianity and, and what it means. And, and we've been moving into really quite a, a very unique theological perspective, which you mentioned um, as the third level, that noetic understanding of of knowing God like Adam knew Eve, um, which in my tradition is understood, um, as you said, penetratively, uh, sexually. Um, and and that is a, a very different understanding of God, which I think, um, if I'm right hearing from what you were saying, is similar to this, this theosis idea, which I read elsewhere was was becoming was this idea of, of God becoming incarnate so that we might be made God. And and to me, that's very different from a Jewish perspective of of devikut of cleaving to God. This is I've never heard of uh, us humanity becoming God. So I wonder if you can take us further into what that means, because it is it's quite an extraordinary theological perspective. Thank you, Rabbi. That's a great question. I appreciate it. Um, yes, you were quoting actually Athanasius the Great who in the beginning of the 4th century, around 300, uh, wrote what we call On the Incarnation, in which he makes that now famous uh, line, which wasn't new. It was actually a, a capitulation of, uh, recapitulation of the whole uh, doctrine and teaching of the church from the very beginning. Namely, the, and this is at the heart of the Christian faith, that God became man or human, he took our he assumed the human nature that we might be able to share in the divine nature now so 
so let's say it again, how, how he put it. Right. God became man so that man might become God. Uh-huh. He, put, he leaves it. He doesn't just say God-like, but he says right. God. Right. And we have a very clear understanding for Orthodox words really matter. We have a very clear understanding of what that means to become God. Not by nature, mm-hmm. but by grace. Not by essence, but through participation in the divine energies of God. An analogy that's often used is that of iron, that's going to be like our human nature, put into the fire, like God's nature. Mm -hmm. It doesn't become fire itself, but it takes on the energy of the fire and has heat and light, the properties of the fire, and so becomes fire by grace, we could say. Uh, by participation, by interpenetration. And let me just take a quick second here mm-hmm. to make sure that when we speak of divine eros, we're not speaking in a carnal sense of union mm-hmm. uh, in, in, a, in a sexual sense, but rather in a, something that the sexual union of man and woman actually points to something higher, precisely the union between God and his people in a very intimate knowing, in a bridal sense. So that language of the bride and the bridegroom is central to, in the, in the scriptures, but also to the Orthodox faith. Can I ask, though, uh, the perspective of bride and groom today is very different to the perspective of bride and groom 2,000 years ago, where the groom was dominant, the groom determined the behavior, the, the, the acts of the bride. Is that the same for you, theologically speaking? No, because Orthodox would, would not hold that, that view of, a, of hierarchy being where one lords it over another. Uh, but rather, we believe that, the, that in God and, and in the cosmos, that reality is both hierarchical and conciliar, mutual, so that you can have God who's still God by nature. We will never be God by nature. He's always by nature uncreated, we will always be by nature created. However, so there's a real distinction between who God is by nature Mm. and who we are by nature. But the beautiful thing is, is that the two uh, can be interconnected in a bridal fashion, where two who are not the same are brought together in, in a fashion that is mystical and divine and beautiful and glorious and is doxified, is, is glorified. So for us, theosis is all about this, well, let me put it in, I think, terms that you would really pick up on, were to become burning bushes. In other words, the bush is a natural phenomenon. Right. But the fire that did not consume the bush is divine. And they both dwell together. I heard you recently say to a group of uh, non-Jewish people, you were sharing about the Torah, and you said, you know, people touch the Torah and they kiss their hand because holiness can can be, I think you said, communicated or transferred. Right. Yes, it's transferable. So there's an actual transference of the glory and the, 
it's not created. It's the uncreated energy of God that interpenetrates the human being and makes the human being, by grace, a God-man, a God-person. I love, I love the mentioning of the bush, particularly because uh, rabbinic tradition asks, why was it a thorn bush? You know, why not? I mean, the thorn bush is, is a difficult plant. It's one of those plants that, you know, you, you try to get something from and, you, and it hurts. And yes. It, it, it's a painful plant. So why not something more glorious like a tree or, and so on? And in typical rabbinic fashion, the answer was if it had been any other plant, you would have asked the same question, which is a nice avoidance of the entire question. But I think there's something quite important about the thorn bush, which is it is a – um, a bush that has a negative connotation to it, I guess. And, and so the reason I ask that connecting with, with, with what you're talking about here is with difficult people. And, and that question of, is this access, is this becoming God or is this, is this access to God's energy or fire, if we're using the iron and the fire metaphor, is it available to everyone in your tradition? Absolutely. And it's not only is it available, but it's the destiny of every human being to become one with God. What does that mean? Let, let, let's, let's take the stark opposite. What does that mean for the person who is the atheist who dies an atheist? What, yeah. what is their destiny for you? Because that's, destiny is, is quite a presumptive, determinative notion. So then... What happens of the atheist who dies in their atheism? Beautiful question. For us, it's a great mystery, but we continue to pray for those who have departed. We pray, and I have to believe that if we are asked to pray for them, there must be some possibility of something in the mystery of God that we would still say is transformative on the other side of the veil of death. That said, here's another mystery. Go ahead. Right? It's another mystery that we would never go against the fact that every human being has free will mm -hmm. and free choice mm -hmm. that can say no to God. And yet we also say God has a will, and the scripture says that it's God's will that all men would be saved. So we know it's his, God, his will that in the end all would – when we say saved, we mean communion. We right. mean union with God. See, I, I was going to specifically ask that as soon as you say that because – I guess as a Jew, the word, you know, the phrase be saved immediately makes me nervous, I guess. Um, you know, when um, a history of um, not necessarily Eastern Christianity, to be fair, but that sense of we will help you be saved through the crusades, through all oh, these yeah. things. Right. Yeah. So, so immediately that, that concept of being saved, I think, um, um, sets up an opposition but I, I get the sense that you're not saying it in that way. Thank you so much for, for clarifying that. I really appreciate that. Yes, for us, salvation is a matter of, we would say, maybe made whole. It's a therapeutic understanding. It's uh, I was sick and somebody came and rescued me from my sickness and brought the healing medicine that made me whole and transformed me into um, – a healthy person, a person who's alive. So, so is there 
only one way to be saved. I mean, and, and I ask that particularly from that medicine analogy, because we've had guests on, we had a guest a few weeks ago who um, works in the hospital and, and there is that healing or saving of the body, but also that saving of the mind that they do through other work as well. And, and different people can respond to different medicine in different ways. So one one person's, uh, two people can, can display a very similar illness, but actually respond to different medicine better. So therefore, extending yeah. that from the physical to the spiritual, um, is there one way to be saved, as, as you understand? That's, that's really a beautiful question. Uh, two other words we were going to talk about, maybe they would be helpful, is uh, metanoia. Metanoia is that process of you're going in one direction that might not be healthy, and you have an aha experience, and you turn around. You go a different way. You have an epiphany. You have a, a, a moment where you, you rise up above where you were, and something has been changed in you. And how many forms of epiphany could there be? Billions for, one, right. for every human being, uh, some kind of very unique way of I was going in this direction, and now I found Wow, a new way that has brought life. So metanoia, by the way, it comes from a, a change of the noose, right. of the noose, of the noetic vision. And so in, that, in one sense, we could say there is only one way to be saved or to be healed, uh, to use that, because I, I agree with you, that word saved has so much baggage in the West and much of which... Western Christians must uh, recognize as been a sorrowful history in terms of how it's been used to oppress other people. So I, I want to acknowledge that, especially sitting with you as a rabbi, um, that there's been misuse of language. But the real understanding of salvation is always about the healing of the human person. And so on the one hand, we could say there are many, 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 as many as there are human beings having moments of epiphanies and, and that change. At the other hand, we would say, well, but there's only one way, right? That the noose, the noetic uh, lens be healed and, and that we actually have union with God, that we actually enter in that, through that door, through um, the, the link between God and human beings. And so in one sense, we could say there's only one way. In the other sense, we say God uses a multitude of ways. I said orthodoxy is paradoxy. I'm going to, with a final minute left, ah, yes. um, some faiths are very clear in their vision so that people can, can access them and say, right, I understand what this community stands for. When you share so many paradoxes, it's it's appealing because it um, it enables us to explore in a non-dogmatic way, but it also makes it a little difficult to 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 understand where we are uh, in 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 the light of your faith. Is that actually more a statement about me thinking in a Western way than it is about your tradition itself? I think so. Uh, if if we started with a very to use the word dogmatic um, or theological mm -hmm. statement that God became human in the Theanthropos, in the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's 
putting a real point on a theological uh, understanding that God became flesh through the Virgin Mary, and he became human so that we might fulfill the destiny that every human being is called to. So in a very direct sense, um, the orthodoxy holds a very uh, clear theology uh, and at the same time is a very uh, welcoming and inclusive uh, faith. I want to thank you for this discussion. This has been truly fascinating. I have learned so much, and, and I hope you might be able to return again for, I would us, love to, that. for us to explore in greater depth. So um, thank you, Father John Bethencourt from the Holy Trinity Orthodox Church. Thank you for this fascinating discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.